I'm Harlan Krumholtz, and welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. I am so excited today to have Dana Lewis with us, creator of her own artificial pancreas. When Dana was 14, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, a chronic condition in which the pancreas produces little or no insulin. At first, she used finger poke glucose tests to measure her sugar levels and determine if she needed to take insulin, like a lot of other people. But as she got older, she used a monitor that could continually measure her sugar levels, and these have become more common. The monitor sounded alarms if her sugar dropped too low or, or went too high, but these alarms were too quiet to wake her up at night, making her afraid that, that something bad might happen to her in her sleep. When Dana moved away from her home, she needed a solution. And rather than actually wait for that solution or someone else to provide it, she came up with something on her own. She was eventually able to stream data from her glucose monitor to the cloud so she could share it with family and set a much louder alarm for herself. When she began dating Scott Liebran, the two of them worked together to make a system that would work ultimately to adjust her insulin delivery in response to changing blood sugar levels without Dana having to press a button. This system, called OpenAPS and others like it, are now being used by thousands of people with diabetes around the world. Dana chose not to commercialize it, instead posting the code in her work for others to use. Today, she works tirelessly with researchers, regulatory bodies, and other people living with diabetes, even though, as she has said, I'm just a girl living with type 1 diabetes who got tired of waiting. Dana, it's really amazing to be with you. So let's go back to the beginning because, I mean, you're a kid when you're first diagnosed. You're 14 years old. What were you thinking about when they told you that you had diabetes? I remember thinking first that I just wanted to go back to school and I wanted to do the normal things I was doing, which was playing in the band and performing in the color guard. So I was really focused on learning what I needed to do in order to go back to that and be what I felt like I wanted to be, which was a normal teenager where diabetes didn't define me. It wasn't my identity. It was just something that I was going to have to deal with. And so I, even though I was 14, I took over the management of diabetes myself. I tested my blood sugar. I did my injections and did what I needed to do so I could go back to school and, and do what I wanted to do. 99% of what people with diabetes do is completely self-managed. You're given a vial of insulin and a syringe or an insulin pen, and you're kind of given some basic information, but you're expected to go off and dozens of times a day make decisions about dosing this life-saving but also lethal drug. Yeah, it's often occurred to me that, that for some reason, the diabetes community and, and the treatment and interactions of people with diabetes with their practitioners evolved in a way that, that was truly a partnership. And a lot of responsibility fell on people with a condition. I mean, that they, they assumed it, whereas in so many areas in medicine, we act much more paternalistically. Well, yes and no. It's kind of interesting where in some cases we don't have that attitude because we expect people to, you know, test their blood sugar, count what they're eating, inject their insulin, you know, manage day to day mostly on their own. But at the same time, when new technology comes out, the paternalistic 
attitude that occurs elsewhere in healthcare does apply mm. within diabetes. You can actually look back to the 1960s and 70s when finger stick blood glucose testing first came out. It was only used in hospitals and at doctor's offices. And you can look at the literature where it talked about doctors saying, we don't want patients to do this at home because they might use this information. Mm. And well, guess what? Finger stick blood glucose testing became home blood glucose testing that became normalized. And when continuous glucose monitor first came out in the 1990s and early 2000s, the first versions, the data was blinded to patients and wow. only available to healthcare provider. And again, healthcare providers said, hey, patients shouldn't have this information. They might act on it. But unlike some of the other areas, I mean, there was ultimately a migration from, from you know, the idea that only doctors can handle information to sharing it with people with diabetes. What do you think accounted for that? I think it's really been the patients driving it every step of the way. So I think all of these progressions in technology, it's been pushes by people living with diabetes, people living with the disease who've said, this is not good enough. We need a new standard of care. Just going back to your experience. So at age 14, how were you? You were doing finger sticks, right? At that time? Correct. And and how did it affect your 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 life? I mean, the diabetes, the the, the management, did it, were you able to keep it sequestered or did it actually affect your high school years? Yes and no. Um, I remember my, my biggest realization of how diabetes immediately affected my life was all of a sudden I had this huge glucose meter that was bigger than like a modern iPhone 10 hmm. or 11, um, big bulky thing. And so I went from not having to carry a purse to having to carry a purse with this huge meter, with syringes, with insulin, with glucose with me all the time. I was really, really frustrated by the stigma I saw in society of how people with diabetes were treated. Type one, type two didn't matter. I saw people with diabetes being treated very, very poorly in the healthcare system and in society. And so my first instinct was that I didn't want anybody to know, other than suddenly I was carrying a purse, that I had type one diabetes. Can you give me some examples? What did you see that that made you feel that way? I just saw the constant shame and blame towards people who were living with this disease through no fault of their own and telling people that it was their fault that they were getting complications and that it was their fault that X and Y and Z happened. And a lot of this is disproportionately directed towards type 2 diabetes, but nobody with any healthcare condition deserves to be blamed for it. It's not their fault that they have it. And I also saw so much confusion about type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And so a lot of times the misconceptions about type 2 or different types of diabetes and the blame and the frustration of people having to deal with this, I, I felt like it was directed towards me. What was your initial experience like with the healthcare system, with the clinicians that you were dealing with? So I was diagnosed um, actually by my primary care doctor and sent that same day an hour later to see a pediatric endocrinologist who was absolutely phenomenal. And I remember her walking in and the first thing she said is, you have type one diabetes, but you're going to be okay. It's okay. Mm. You know, you can get an insulin That's pump, great. you can go to diabetes camp. Um, but what was really funny is because all I want to do is go back to school and be normal. I was like, I don't want to pump. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't mm. want to go to camp. I want to, you know, do my swim team and my dive team and color guard. I want to keep 
doing what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I remember kind of being like, oh, I want to do what I want to do. Um, but other than that, my healthcare providers at the start were absolutely phenomenal. But I remember, especially as I went to college and started dealing with kind of, you know, random healthcare providers, if I got sick and I went to the university health clinic, I remember going in and being told, oh yeah, you have, you know, you have whatever, you need an antibiotic, but you have type one diabetes. I'm concerned what the antibiotic will do to your blood sugar. So I'm not going to give it to you. And I'm like, but no, if I'm sick and I need antibiotic, I need the antibiotic because my blood sugar will be worse if my sickness isn't treated. <laughs> and right. the provider refused. And so I remember walking out, calling my endocrinologist who lived two hours away. Explaining Ref what happened. Refusing to give you the antibiotic for that? Right. And having my endocrinologist have to prescribe it and me pick it up because the provider at the mm. university clinic was scared mm. of the impact on my blood sugar, even though it was my decision and my choice. He refused. Um, and there's been little things like that ever since with kind of healthcare providers who have less experience with diabetes, not wanting to treat me or not wanting to treat people with diabetes, um, you know, even if it's within their purview, because they're concerned about the impact on the blood sugar, even though the absence of treatment will cause, you know, more disruption to the blood sugar in the long run. It's really frustrating. Let, let me isolate this little piece, though, because I think it's, it's important because because you heard something that just didn't sound right to you. That was what you heard from one doctor. And then you called another doctor to sort of help make sense of it and maybe to address it. That's not easy for a lot of people to do. So overall, I find that to be really, really challenging, especially self-advocacy in the face of healthcare authority. Um, in this particular situation, because I had an established relationship with an endocrinologist who I trusted, you know, walking out and calling them was not a big act of courage. It was a small act of courage, but there have been many other times where I've not had, you know, a trusted endocrinologist to fall back on. And I think that's that's incredibly hard because it's not a one-time thing. It's constantly like crawling through broken glass when you're encountering the healthcare system. I always feel like I have to go in and be armed with information about all my diabetes and convince the healthcare provider that I am equipped and empowered to make the choice about whether something is going to impact my blood sugar or not. And kind of gear up for battle before I even go in. And sometimes healthcare providers are like, okay, great. We see you've got it covered. No worries. But that's the exception rather than the rule. And I remember earlier this year, for example, I um, was hiking in New Zealand. I slipped off the trail. I broke my ankle. I had to be oh airlifted to a hospital. And while we were waiting on the, the helicopter, my husband said to me, you know, don't forget, I'm since I can't come with you because you're getting airlifted out alone, you know, be prepared to advocate for yourself. Like, don't let them you know, push on you, be prepared to push back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know because I've been doing this for so long. But what he was trying to do was given me the emotional willpower to, if I needed to, to fight for myself, because it is exhausting having been doing this for 17 years. It's exhausting. And sometimes you choose, you know what, this is not the battle I want to fight, but sometimes it is important to your health and you do have to be prepared to fight. Yeah. I think on this patient side, there's no question that people are expert in themselves. They there's this piece about preferences and values and goals. Those are That's only accessible to the individual who can then communicate it. But it can't be inferred. There are plenty of studies to say when doctors guess about preferences, values, and goals of individuals, they're often wrong. And then people's context of their lives, what, what challenges they're facing, what their lives are like is so important to how they can navigate health challenges. 
Mm -hmm. And I think one really good example of this, bringing it back to diabetes, is all of the information that patients with diabetes have learned since the advent of continuous glucose monitors, where we have data now every five minutes, and we can more clearly see, in some cases, correlation, and in other cases, cause and effect with different behaviors and different things that are historically perceived to impact or not impact blood sugars. For example, there's something called the Dawn phenomenon, which is the fact that overnight in say like 3 to 5 a.m., if for somebody who sleeps during overnight during that time period, there are hormones that surge and those can make your blood sugar rise. And so historically, some people will and clinicians will advise to raise the amount of insulin during that time period or before that time period to address that raise. But not everybody has Dawn phenomenon. Not everybody has it at the different time to everything else. And there's also a phenomenon that happens when people wake up in the morning where they stand up out of bed, get going, and they have a hormone surge, kind of like Dawn phenomenon, but it's they're awake, they're going. It's not the same thing as Dawn phenomenon. But most of the time, that's completely overlooked by healthcare providers who think that rise is related to breakfast or coffee or mistimed stuff in the morning. But we now have the data from enough patients to show, no, there's actually a, a feet on floor thing, phenomenon happening here that's not really been well documented because nobody's had the data to really distinguish the difference between dawn phenomenon that's happening when sleeping and something that happens when people first wake up and get going that's separate from mm. you know a coffee or breakfast effect. Yeah. So the tools are now in the patient's hand and we're able to drill back some of the noise and present some of these ideas and concepts back to the traditional healthcare world and say, hey, this needs to be studied more. Yeah. Yep. Let me ask you, I want to go back a little bit to this uh, <laughs> this idea. You didn't just accept the status quo. So you you had this monitor, and then there's this this sense that the alarm's not going to wake you up if if your blood sugar drops. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? I mean, when did that occur to you, and and what made you think you could do something about it? <laughs> well, I did actually accept the status quo for a good decade of living with diabetes because I didn't have the tools to change it. But in college, when I you know, was living in a dorm room and I started using continuous glucose monitors, I very quickly realized I'm a very good sleeper. I'm going to sleep through <laughs> all the alarms on this device, especially if it's tucked under the covers with me because I can't even hear it if I'm awake and I have perfectly normally tested hearing. Um, and so I started asking the companies and saying, can you make this louder? Because I think this is an issue for me. It's probably an issue for other people. And I was told repeatedly over the years by different companies that it wasn't a problem for most people or they were working <laughs> on it. I kind of had been dreaming for years about, well, if I could get the data off my device, which I couldn't, you know, I'd send it to my phone and make my own louder alarm. If they're not going to do it, wow. I would do it myself. But wow. you didn't have a way to get real-time data off this device. Um, but that changed a couple months later when I saw a tweet from a gentleman named John Kostick, who had the same frustration of not being able to get real-time data from his son's continuous glucose monitor. By, by the way, was this a matter of asking the manufacturers, the manufacturers refusing to give you access to the data? Yeah, because it was not designed for that. It was designed to only retrospectively pull off 30 days of data. They thought nobody needed real-time data on a secondary display. You know, it wasn't designed for that. It wasn't approved for that. Nobody needed that. That was only for, you know, helicopter parents, I think one company executive once said. <laughs> and so if you were not with the patient and you were not able to click on the button and look at the screen, you couldn't see the data. Right. So for example, if I was sleeping, I couldn't see the data. Right. If I wasn't awake and pressing the button and showing it to somebody, they couldn't see the data. Right. And so for parents of kids, that can be an issue if the kid is sleeping across the house and they don't want to physically go across the house to press the button and look at the screen or the child's at school. 
And that's why John Caustic looked at, okay, is there a way to get the data off this device and send it to the cloud so I can remotely monitor? And John shared his code and we were able to build that first ladder system that took the data from the physical device, loaded it to the cloud, sent it to my phone, made a louder alarm, and it was super effective in waking me up. It was great. And what was the reaction of the external world to that, to manufacturers and others? Well, so I thought it was the coolest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. And I remember um, about six months later, we were wanting to talk about it, wanting to share it because we knew other people might want to use it. And we actually presented a small demo at a diabetes tech conference. The members of the FDA who were present came over to our demo table and said, tell us more about this thing that you've built. And we excitedly said, you know, we got the data off. We're sending it to her phone. It's making a, you know, a louder alarm. It's telling me when I should take action. And they said, hmm, well, you're making dosing recommendations off of a device, the CGM, that's not designed for that. Uh, so that would make your thing a class three medical device. We don't recommend sharing your code like you're talking about, because that would be, from our perspective, distributing a class three medical device, which mm. you can't do without regulatory approval. And but you were providing reaction, information, not telling people what to do with that information, right? Well, right. But a couple of months later, we realized that not only we could talk to the CGM, but we could also read and write data to an insulin pump, put that together with the algorithm that we had built, and we built a hybrid closed loop system that was automatically adjusting my insulin delivery when I needed it. And we thought carefully about it and said, you know, the FDA is right. We don't want to distribute this. We don't want to create a company. We don't want people to do this not being safe. But we also know that even if we just talk about what we're doing, other people are going to try to do it. And we want them to do it as safely as possible. And we spent a year designing the algorithm and designing the system for safety and coming up with hardware and software safety limits. And we think people will be more safe using the information and our design to build upon versus recreating all the wheels themselves and learning all the lessons we did. And that's why we decided to share our code and share the safety design. And that's how OpenAPS as a movement around the open source artificial pancreas system came to be. Can you just take us through exactly, so how does it work? What, what is the, what is OpenAPS exactly? I mean, many people listening won't be familiar with what exactly you developed. I mean, like you said, artificial pancreas system, but, but take us through exactly what it is and how it works. So what an artificial pancreas system is, it's really what we call a hybrid or a full closed loop system that's bridging the gap between the continuous glucose monitor and the insulin pump. Because most people don't realize that a traditional insulin pump is not automatically adjusting your insulin delivery in response to blood glucose levels. That's a really common misperception. What a standard insulin pump does is you pre-program it with amounts of insulin to get throughout the day. And you press a button when you eat something or need to correct. But the human is driving all of those dose changes. If your blood sugar goes low overnight, for example, the pump is designed to keep dosing you with insulin unless you wake up and tell it to do otherwise. So essentially, an insulin pump is designed to overdose you when your blood sugar goes low. So what we did was write an algorithm that would live on a small computer and take the data from the glucose monitor and take the insulin dosing data from the pump and decide, okay, is the blood sugar predicted to be above or below target? If it's above, tell the pump to give a little more insulin safely to bring the blood sugar into range. And if the blood sugar is predicted to go low, reduce the insulin delivery to prevent that low. It's kind of like stepping on and off a gas pedal. We don't have a brake, but you can step on and off the gas pedal, which is giving more or less insulin. And so the closed loop system is the computer that is reading data from the pump 
and the CGM and then adjusting the insulin delivery on the pump and then reading the next blood glucose level and doing that over and over again every five minutes without fail, without going to sleep, without getting lazy, without rounding um, mm-hmm. like a human would do. Um, and so that's why it's so effective is it's making you know 255 decisions a day that a human could never compete with that number of decisions. And if the blood sugar levels suddenly change through exercise and error in the sensor, or because somebody ate and didn't tell the system, it can respond much more quickly and accurately than a human could. But how did you know, I mean, even for yourself, I mean, you can see the tension here because there would be a concern that somebody thinks that they're putting together a good system and could actually be putting themselves at risk because, you know, it's not going through all the regulatory rigor that, you know, a company would would undergo. How did you? I mean, what? How are you thinking about this now? Because if successful, it's amazing. And and what's most amazing? Let me just call out. Like, you know, you're trying to control your destiny. You're saying like this. You know, I want to be able to have something that works for me, and I want to be able to share it with other people. I mean, it's a great instinct. But how are you balancing that with concerns about safety? And it's a big responsibility. Yeah. And I think it comes actually back to understanding what it's like to live with type one diabetes. When the day you are diagnosed, you are handed a vial of insulin that is life-saving, but is also lethal. And if you give a few units too much or too less at the wrong time, or even if you give the perfect amount of insulin and your body suddenly becomes very resistant or very, very sensitive because you exercised or you're going through a growth spurt or you're sick or something happens, something can still happen to your blood sugars to go out of range and be dangerously low or dangerously high. And when you look at the number of decisions a human has to make, is making, and the number of errors a human does make, you have to look at all of that in context of the decision about additional risk from an automated insulin delivery system. And so I believe, in my personal choice, is that this type of system actually on net reduces my risk in living with diabetes and the risk of me as a human trying my best, but still having a number of errors. The system has way fewer errors and is given very, very restrictive limits on what it can do. And so the margin of error on it making a small micro decision every five minutes versus the margin of error of me as a human making a dozen decisions a day it's a no-brainer to me. And so how did you share this information with the community? So the first thing we actually published was a plain language safety design that we call the reference design. So if you go to openaps.org, that's one of the big calls to action is to read the reference design, which describes in plain language for anybody to read what the system does and what it does not do. And it's very clear in talking about this is not a set and forget system. This does not cure you of diabetes. You still have type one diabetes. It's kind of like autopilot for a car or a plane where there's still a driver or a pilot. You're still wearing your pump and CGM. You're still in control of your destiny. But in the background, this system is going to be making adjustments and predictions to help bring you in range. And what we also then shared was a basic code base where if somebody wanted to build the system themselves, they could use that reference design 
and build the systems themselves and tell it to work with their pump and their CGM and give it their personalized settings and allow it to automate their insulin delivery. But every day that they wake up and decide to clip that system onto their pocket or throw it in their backpack, you know, they're making the intentional decision to decide to use it. So it's not a one decision and you're locked in. It's anytime you decide to use it or continue to use it, you know, you're making the choice that this is better than what you had before. And this is what you use every day. Exactly. I've been using it every day for, wow, over five years now. Wow. And and how many other people do you think are using it? We estimate that there are probably several thousand people using these DIY systems now worldwide. Wow. And, and what's the reaction from the medical establishment or from the manufacturers or, or from the regulators? So the first reaction we got from healthcare providers was, okay, Dana, that's nice, but that's just you. you know, <laughs> how do you know it's going to work for anybody else? And I said, well, I don't, um, but people are starting to use it. So within a year, I did a survey out to the community and asked people to share generally their results and feedback. And we actually submitted and got accepted to the world's biggest diabetes scientific conference. And we presented a poster just like all other researchers and shared, hey, 18 of the first 40 people are sharing their data and here's what it is. And healthcare providers then said, okay, that's nice, but that's self-reported data. You know, it'd be much better if you could actually analyze the raw data and said, Okay. So we came back in 2018 and presented the raw data and it had kind of the same conclusions as the self-reported data. And people said, yeah, but that's retrospective data. You know, observational and prospective data would be so much better. Well, guess what? This year in 2019, there were observational studies, there were prospective studies, and then we've heard, mm, yeah, but randomized control trials are really the gold <laughs> standard. And at this point, it's getting a little bit silly. There's always going to be people who don't think it's a good idea, whether that's healthcare provider or people themselves decide not to do it. And that's totally fine. DIY is not going to be for everyone. And we don't think DIY is the only answer. We DIY'd because there was nothing out there. There was a gap. There was no commercial technology available. And there's commercial technology that does kind of the same thing starting to come out. But the first generation of the systems are like what I had five years ago, which is good and better than nothing, but not perfect. And what we have isn't perfect either, but we've made a lot of changes and improvements in the last five years, and it's gotten better and better and better. And so I'm kind of wanting the community to set the standard high for the commercial companies and say, look what's possible when patients do it themselves. How are you doing this? Is, is this a full-time endeavor for you? I mean, how, how are you keeping this going? No, this was always something that we did on the side as a personal project. And then even when we started working more and more in the community and have spent, you know, lots of time over the last five to six years working on this, this was never a paid thing. And we were always very careful to keep it clear that we were not paid to work on this. We are not getting paid when anybody uses it. This is a pure open source, non-paid, non-commercial project. Nothing's getting distributed. Um, and that's both important because we want, the community to contribute and learn from each other. Um, but we also realized early on that when Scott and I were the first ones using it and then helping the next couple of users, we wanted to build a community around it because we designed this so I could sleep, right? So I wasn't going to be the one who needed to get called at 3 a.m. if somebody's systems stopped working. We built the community and encouraged the community so that your system might go down at a certain point in time. You might be somewhere in the world where it's 3 a.m. for me. But if you post online, there's other people and other time zones who can absolutely help and who can absolutely support. What, what kind of message do you give to people in your community that can give them confidence that they can engage like this? I think what has helped me, in addition to family, was finding support online. 
And there are a number of great communities and niches of people with diabetes online. If you're on Facebook, there's support groups there. If you're on Twitter, if you're on these other tools, there's amazing pockets of the community. And it's what we call the diabetes online community. And I think it's one of the best examples of online communities and healthcare around. And so I would say, go online, join a community. You'll be met with welcome arms um, and you'll find others who are dealing with the same situation you are. Mm, Thank you so much. Dana, you know, you're, you're such a great exemplar of this pay it forward. I mean, you've, you've contributed so much to the community and your, your generosity and, and spirit of sharing is just uh, extraordinary. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity and thanks to everybody who tuned in today. Thank you. Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Caraballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. <laughs>